from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a filmmaker that uses practical magic to create transcendent art. Through the medium of experimental film, he blends raw emotion into a surreal dreamscape. He's joining me today to talk about his previous book, Sex Magicians, as well as his new film, The Dream Machine. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Michael William West. Michael, welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you for having me on. Nice to be here. Yes, sir. I really enjoyed your book, Sex Magicians. It was a great exposition on some of the most interesting magicians to ever practice the craft. And that, along with your surreal, absolutely transcendent film, The Dream Machine, in my opinion, really cements you as not only a scholar, but also an artist. So I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. So you've been an occult practitioner of various left-hand path traditions for, from what I read, over 20 years. I've heard at least for the layperson that a simple way to describe left-hand path philosophy is my will be done rather than thy will be done, which would be kind of the immersive philosophy of the right-hand path. Can you expand on that a little further? Sure. I think that's correct as a beginning point. I mean, this idea really originated in Indian Tantra, and I think it was a simple way to start with for religious authorities to encourage people to follow a moral order and do what they were supposed to do, which was to show up together and follow a kind of guided religious ceremony, which obviously had implications that are social and political as well. And this is something that's familiar to any culture around the world, I'm sure. But the notion then that came out of that was that that's the right-hand path. So the left-hand path were people who were not willing to join in so much with this kind of idea. And uh, in the Indian system in particular, in the Tantra, this developed into a sense of light only having the external god who you worship as a right-hand path idea and the left-hand path was kind of as you said my will be done or looking for an internal deity as well as looking for a balance between light and dark and equilibrium state was more important but i think as this idea moved into the west 
it really became translated into, you know, the left-hand path was a kind of more individualistic uh, approach to spirituality. I mean, that's a very basic overview. There are uh, hundreds of different attempts to define this uh, idea, but I think if you're willing to go it alone and you're interested in a state of kind of dark and light equilibrium, you're on the left-hand path, you know, at least to some extent. And one doesn't rule the other out. You can be off both paths. It's quite a fluid uh, thing. Yeah. So I think a lot of people's misconception, and I believe it was Helena Blavatsky, if I'm uh, pronouncing that right, the founder of Theosophy, didn't she kind of conflate left-hand path with evil and right-hand path with good? I mean, in a sense, that's originally what it meant. Uh, in a very, you know, traditional sense, because people who don't want to join in with everybody else are, are bad people, and people who do things their own way are bad people. But particularly in the West, I think, maybe more than in the East, a sense of individualism has maybe been more more admirable. So her translation of those ideas was a bit strange even then, you know, 150 years ago or something. And thousands of years back, there were plenty of people saying, well, no, you know, being independently minded, left-hand path minded, definitely doesn't, you know, denote somebody who's evil, of course. So uh, it was a very simplistic beginning in the West of how these things were understood. And I think, yes, that's been a a misconception from Blavatsky and others to say that left-hand is black magic and right-hand is white magic. And these simplistic definitions are, they're not going to help you very much in uh, having a a more in-depth understanding. Yeah. And Circling back to what you mentioned about Tantra, is that kind of the origin? I feel like I remember something about the way energy flows, left side of the body coming out of the right. I may have that backwards, but... Uh, I mean, it's the origin that we know about. Okay. It's the, the earliest historically recorded origin of many ideas about how energy works within the body. But I mean, to my mind, clearly these things are much more ancient than you know, just 5,000 years, I think they probably uh, root back to a point that is beyond our uh, scientific ability to reconstruct or understand. Well, not all of the individuals in the book Sex Magicians practice the left-hand path traditions. So what was the common thread you found in the individuals that prompted you to include them in the book? I think given that the left-hand path is a fairly broad and vague definition of how people go about their spiritual practice. In my opinion, I think all of them had some left-hand path elements to what they do. I think every single one of them was guilty of breaking some moral crime, if not, (laughs) uh, in some cases, actual crimes. So the independent-mindedness and the willingness to open up new ways of thinking and new ways of understanding the inner mind in particular, are important, but also each one of them is somebody who had an outcome that was very interesting. They lived interesting lives, not always happy and fulfilling lives, but they were interesting and influential lives that were in some way fueled by their practices, which whether they were left or right-hand path, I think perhaps doesn't matter so much ultimately, but uh, they were independently-minded spiritual people who had fascinating lives and you know, some of them created extraordinary things. So it wasn't so much the particular discipline they practiced. It was more of a philosophical thing. Like, um, I forget where it was. I read it that like technically Thelema is right hand path. Is that true or is that incorrect? 
plenty of people have claimed Thelema to be a right-hand path religious movement because it involves ceremony and groups of people doing things together, essentially, and also a lot of emphasis on an external deity. But then you can equally read almost everything that Crowley did, and that includes Thelema, which he more or less created himself. There are many interpretations of what he really meant by almost everything. <laughs> so I think the correct, uh, you know, you have people like Peter J. Carroll, who is the founder of the kind of chaos magic theory, said that, you know, both states can exist simultaneously. You can be left and right-hand path. And I think Thelema covers all of those aspects. I mean, Crowley was certainly a very aggressive anti-moralist. So <laughs> by that definition, he was very left-hand path. So I think you'd say that both possibilities exist there. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I do this a lot with fiction writers that I interview. I'm like, I'm so detailed oriented. I like, I want this box to fit people in. <laughs> right. I mean, it's understandable, but in the Western sense of the esoteric world, it's so new to us because it was all lost. Everything was destroyed. There really was no thread going back to the ancient traditions. Unlike in India, where you know it thrives today, and Japan, and even in China, in spite of many difficulties in the last several decades. But um, we didn't have anything left. It had to be reconstructed from zero. So people were kind of looking around for easier ways to understand things in the beginning. And 150, 200 years since these things were permitted back into our society, there's been a rebuilding job and more complex understandings have been begun to be accepted, I think. Well, Alistair Crowley said that magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with the will. Based on that definition, your magical background, your scholarly writing of magicians and magic in general, you've moved on to film as your primary focus. Do you consider the creation of film, whether that be still or moving picture, to be magic? And if so, why? Well, film and art have always been my primary focus. And the book came up as kind of an unexpected project, quite a long story that maybe we won't go into now. But uh, that was really, you know, aside from the main objective, which was to create film, cinema, uh, and certain other writings and things like that. Because that's my fundamental belief about the use of magic, as, as Crowley puts it there. My interpretation of what he means by that is that it can affect an internal change. It can allow access to parts of the unconscious mind. And if you're an artist or a filmmaker or anything like that, and you're of an adventurous nature, you should go in there. And uh, it's a dangerous place and a dark place, often for people. <laughs> but you should report the dark back. Mind. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> We're in the right place <laughs> to discuss this very thing. But uh, it's uh, you're obliged to report back in a way that makes sense in filmmaking. You know, the things that you will see in your unconscious mind are not necessarily easy to explain in words, but I think in images, if you can create images and moods and feelings through filmmaking, often people will recognize those things because we share so much of this strangeness that is in our unconscious. And I think Kenneth Anger said something to this effect that filmmaking was a, a form of magical ritual and watching a film, especially if you do it in a movie theater, you know, with the big screen and people around you is, uh, is a very ritualistic experience. So I would say so. Yeah. 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 Kenneth Onger. So you kind of brought something up there that I was wondering about. I've talked to, and I think I've, have I interviewed somebody 
trying to remember if Danny Stygian was of that particular mindset, but some people that believe that magical operations like in the ritual chamber or however they choose to do it, whether they have any effect outside in the objective world or whether it's all the magician changing his own subjective universe, his own consciousness. Right. So am I understanding you correctly that like if you're speaking in the language of like lesser and greater magic, lesser magic affects the outside world through manipulation and greater magic affects the mind of the magician? Sure. Yeah. But I mean, this is a hotly debated topic among people interested <laughs> in the occult. Yeah. But I have to say that I'm very much uh, quite extreme on one side of this argument. I don't believe in the supernatural in the sense that uh, I don't believe that you can perform magical rituals and make other people or other objects behave differently in that kind of uh, wizardry sense. <laughs> I'm only interested. I mean, I, I, you know, there's plenty of people that say they can and, you know, who am I to dispute? Or maybe I just am personally incapable, but I'm only really interested in what it can do to allow me access to my own mind. And I don't really have any uh, kind of uh, desire to uh, kind of uh, have power over you know, objects or people or anything like that anyway. And I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't really believe that's possible. So, yeah. So do you feel like when it comes to the creative mind, creating art, that you can use magic to tap in to a place, into the creative mind to create, or that by creating, you're tapping in? to that mind? Like, I, I know that's kind of an ass backwards question, but it makes sense to me uh, in my I head. <laughs> I think I got what you mean. Uh, I think that the way for me that it works is they're slightly separate events, mm -hmm. but not entirely. I think you go and look for things through meditation or whatever practice you're used to, and then you allow it to come to you at a later point, you know, when you need it. The idea of what you need to do becomes more intuitive. And I think the actual creative process is often extremely laborious and boring, you know, for most people. <laughs> I don't find it boring, but I think a lot of people would find it very boring to edit a film. I know I know plenty of filmmakers who find editing to be completely mind-numbing, but uh, it's my favorite part. I really enjoy it, but I fully understand why a lot of filmmakers can't stand to do it. But um, I think it allows you to open the possibility for making the right decision when you need to. And that's the secret of it, really, to do the practice before, to meditate enough or to practice whatever you do before. And then you're ready, you know, you're prepared and you have things to report. Yeah, I don't have any experience with film and I've never edited film, but I have edited my share of audio. And I know it is a tedious process and I can easily see why some people would find it boring. But I'm like you, like I feel like a sculptor slowly carving away yeah. at a, an electronic file just to make it you know, beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. So exactly. I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Austin Osmond Spare found sex magic to be effective because he believed that during an orgasm, the unconscious mind was laid bare and could absorb the intention of a sigil, which was a symbol formed and imbued with the will of the magician. Do you feel that sex is the most powerful method for achieving the transcendent state necessary for a successful magical operation? Uh, no, actually, I don't. But uh, I think meditation still is the ultimate way. 
I don't want to say that sex magic is a kind of shortcut, but it's a lot more accessible to most people. And I mean, even back in the 1950s, if you told a medical professional that you were interested in meditation, they would have thought you were, you know, insane. You know, it would have been, mm-hmm. they would have been concerned about these kinds of things. Like you told them you were getting into voodoo, which by the way is a fascinating thing. But, uh, but now meditation is recommended by every doctor in the world, you know, I think worldwide. So it's quite a new thing to us in the West. Nonetheless, we're still not fully integrated or we haven't fully integrated it into our lives we probably desperately need to i think most people mm. ought to but uh we are a hypersexualized culture and that's still new i mean it's only been a few decades since the so-called sexual liberation and it's a very uncontrolled liberation and uncontrolled emancipation and uh, i think there are many people who are looking for ways in which they can put more meaning into their sexual lives when you look at the cultures we have of pornography and tinder and things like this there's inevitably many many people who are dissatisfied with those kind of hollow experiences so i think if you're willing to go quite far into what your sexuality can do for you you come to a point where the ideas of austin osmond spare like you mentioned are you know that moment where you can have an unconscious you know, sense of yourself is very powerful. And I think meditation can access the same thing, but it does take a lot more, you know, time and effort and dedication. So it's a quicker, faster way to get to an enlightened experience, I suppose. Yeah. uh, I mean, you mentioned how mainstream meditation has become. I mean, literally before we signed on and started recording, I'm staring at my Apple Watch watching some sort of digital lotus flower contract and expand (laughs) as I'm breathing out, getting my head ready for the interview. Yeah. So is there a particular type of meditation you practice? Like I know there's mindfulness, obviously, is probably the most mainstream, but yeah, I think any form of meditation is good. But I think there are so many possibilities and styles and techniques that you can spend some time now researching. My preferred one is the one that the CIA use or used to use or have used, Mm -hmm. which is called the Gateway. And it's from back in the 50s and 60s, in fact. And it requires headphones and it's a kind of sonically guided meditation set up by a guy called Robert Monroe. It was a fully secular nonprofit, nothing culty or weird about this. It was open to all comers and it still exists to this day at the Monroe Institute. It guides you sonically through a 30-minute meditation with the intention of opening up the possibility of you know, astral travel, astral projection. It's based on this idea of what they call hemisync, which is synchronizing the frequencies of the two hemispheres of the brain because modern life causes them to become you know, extremely desynchronized. Uh, and even, so say, it causes the blood flow in the arteries to synchronize. And you feel fantastic afterwards. So I love that one. There are some people who are into transcendental meditation. I mean, that's very much the deluxe <laughs> meditation. I mean, you know, it's no different to any other kind, really. They give you a word to say. and You can say any word in meditation that you want. You can make up your own. But they tell you you need a special word and it costs you $10,000. But then you do get kind Is of... Is that how much it costs? I think now it's about 10000 Dollars, yeah, I might be slightly oh, uh, out, but it's not too, yeah, it's in that uh, kind of region price, wow. which is very expensive. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> given that all the techniques are available for free, you know, yeah, I mean, you get a kind of premium service with that, which is you can show up in any country in the world, any major city in the world, I suppose, and there'll be a TM institute that you can go to and 
there'll be someone there to guide you through it if you need it. But honestly, that still seems like a very, a very expensive uh, way to meditate. But, you know. So you're not just paying for the mantra. You're also paying for skilled teachers yeah. just throughout the world that you right. can. Okay. I think that's 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 the main deal. That kind of yeah. takes the sting out. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely a premium service. But, uh, <laughs> but still, I, I, I mean, I think there's very little that you couldn't teach yourself. And that's why I love the gateway is because you have the guidance just pre-recorded. All 18 tapes are available on YouTube or in various places. So uh, I'm a fan of that one, personally. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Where can I find this? Yeah, they're there. And the CIA used them. There's a report and it was declassified uh, a few years back and they sent an agent to use the tapes in the hopes that they could astral project into the Kremlin. And then later they tried again to astral project onto the moon. And uh, we don't know if they were successful or not, but <laughs> but they, I mean, they- Was this part of Project Stargate? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think it was related to some of that. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I can dig up the file and send it to you. <laughs> it's a fascinating read, yeah. Well, actually, speaking of the CIA, they also they also had an operation called MK Ultra. So, uh, well, that that was a lot more sinister than uh, some meditation. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. The reason I brought that up is because of their use of psychedelics. That was right. going to be my next question: was what are your thoughts on the use of psychedelics to achieve altered states for magical purposes? I mean, there's so many traditions worldwide rely heavily on the use of psychedelics for exactly that, that I can't really dispute how powerful that's been throughout human history. In fact, certainly in our Western culture, it remains taboo. And therefore, if that's still a motivation that one might have to break taboos by taking drugs, then it's very effective. I personally find that most of these experiences can be generated within the mind anyway, and it can be very difficult to control the outcome of certain drugs. But I definitely think that if you're someone who feels like they need to shake off some oppressive layers of whatever it may be, societal, familial, inability to express oneself, then taking some drugs is not such a bad idea as long as you're not going to get into trouble. <laughs> I suppose, you know, yeah. there are some countries where that's perfectly fine and others where it's definitely not. But um, I was lucky to grow up in in a country where psychedelic mushrooms were free and legally available everywhere. Although that changed about 20 or maybe 15 years ago, they outlawed them. But up until that point, it was something you could experiment with without any Okay. And you're, any concerns. are you speaking of where you are now or? No, now I live in Paris, but I, I grew up in the UK, in England. Well, of all the individuals that you included in this book, which one would you say has influenced you the most? Mm. So in general, I'm more drawn to those who used magic as a means to an end rather than as an end in itself. So as interesting as characters like Crowley and LeVay were, I'm more interested in the ones like William Burroughs, Jack Parsons, Genesis, and Austin Spare, as we mentioned, who you know used it to generate something else. I think Spare is probably the one that most interests me. I love his artwork. You know, I think he's one of the great artists. I think he was very unfortunate. Or maybe, I don't know if it was unfortunate, but for reasons that not really clear, he never wanted to leave London. And I think at that time, the art world in London was relatively close-minded when compared to Paris, for example. He maybe would have become a really major 20th century artist, or at least recognized as one, 
if he'd have moved away, perhaps. I think his artwork is worthy of that. And just he was an interesting figure, you know, his, 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 uh, the strange world that he lived in is, I mean, is literally incredible in many respects. And one of my very good friends believes that he's possessed by the angry ghost of Austin Spare, so I can't really ignore that. Uh, <laughs> um, All right. Yeah. My friend Saul, who actually made the soundtrack to the film. So. Oh, yeah, actually. Yeah, I wanted to get to him at some point in the uh, in the interview. Yeah, we'll return to him. But speaking of that film, though, uh, well, first of all, let me say, great book and listeners at home. It's not like a how-to book, but it is... How many different people are in that? What is it? Twelve figures in the book. Twelve. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, just amazing, amazing people. Finally crafted biographies of their life, their high points, their low points, just great book all the way around. So the link will be in the description. Definitely check that out. But moving on to what I just found out, I assumed you started off with writing and branched out into film, but you said film was your primary pursuit and the book was like a singularity that branched out of it. So I'll clarify that slightly. I did begin with writing, but only you know, creative writing, which evolved into making film. Perhaps that began around nine years ago. But I've never written uh, any nonfiction prior to this book. And I'd never intended to write any. In fact, it's just the opportunity arose because uh, of my good friend, Hannah Haddix, who was a good friend of Adam Parfrey, who ran Feral House. And uh, well, it branched off of that. So, uh, but the creative work as an artist, that was always the primary kind of uh, goal. Well, I read in an interview that your film, The Dream Machine, is about the experience of using a dream machine, which was created by Brian Geisen and William S. Burroughs. So can you tell me a little bit about what a dream machine is and how it's used? Yeah, uh, I can. So it was partly created by Geisen but more on a technical level by a man called Ian Somerville, who was part of the beat movement along with Geisen, Burroughs and, and all the rest. But he was like a beat electrician engineer, you know, applying these kind of new beat ideas to technology and, uh, you know, electrical engineering and things. So the most famous creation from him and from them was this dream machine, which I think they put together in 1961 for the first time. So it's a very simple contraption. In fact, it's a 78 RPM turntable with a cylinder of card sitting on top of it. And the card has a very particular pattern cut into it. And then you lower a light bulb into the cylinder, start the record player so it spins, close your eyes, and you look at the light. And the patterned output of the light can induce alpha wave hypnagogic states and certain visions and well, the hypnagogic or hypnagogic, I've heard it pronounced as well, gogic, <laughs> hypnagogic state is uh, that state between wake and sleep where you begin to dream, but you're still somewhat conscious of the fact that you're dreaming and you have some control, similar to lucid dreaming, although that is slightly different in that you're you know, kind of entering into a dream consciously while you're already asleep. But this is trying to just grasp a hold of that moment and elongating it so you can experience some unusual visions in that state. And it's a very effective machine, in fact, really extraordinary. It's probably the worst thing you could possibly do if you have 
epilepsy or photosensitivity. Yeah. So, uh, you know, approach with caution. But uh, if you're not susceptible to, to such things, then it's an extraordinary thing. Did your interest in the concept of a dream machine evolve from your interest in sex magic, which utilizes sex to achieve a similar altered state? Not really, no. I don't think, I mean, I don't think I particularly drew any connection myself between them. In fact, I always was interested and observed that some of the more famous practitioners of dream machines in history were people like Kurt Cobain, William Burroughs, Genesis Peorage, mm -hmm. all of whom were pretty heavy users of heroin, which can have an extremely detrimental effect on your sex life. So I kind of imagined that maybe it was a kind of surrogate possibility, maybe in that sense. But uh, I think they really work separately. I think they have very different functions on the whole. Okay. I think you kind of alluded to it already, but I'm assuming you've used a dream machine? Yeah. In fact, I built a uh, prototype myself about 15 years ago and it worked okay. Uh, in fact, it worked reasonably well until the turntable broke down. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that part was... Uh, need one of those high quality Vestax. Yeah, or... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's not so easy to find 78 RPM turntables that work well, actually. They're a slightly more obscure objects in the regular 33 or whatever. But you can buy them now. Yeah, I think there's a guy in the US that sells them. But they are pretty easy to make. And I did manage to put together a prototype many years ago. But it's, you know, sadly. And so what was your experience like? I mean, do you kind of like, are you seated and it's in front of you on a platform? Or do you kneel down in front of it? How does it? Well, I just put it on the kitchen table and sat in a chair, turned out all of the other lights, apart from the one that's inside the machine. And then just turn it on and let it go. I think it benefited from having certain music or, you know, sound accompaniment, I found. I don't know if that's a standard practice or not, but uh -huh. I felt like it was, uh, you know, adding to it for me. And so, obviously, if you watch the movie, The Dream Machine, there is some fevered movement, a lot of flashing lights. There's a scene in the movie where a woman takes a bite of fruit and then appears nude. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but it reminded me of Eve in the garden eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and becoming self-aware of her own nakedness. So does the film have to do with the woman's self-aware awakening? And if not, what is the conscious narrative of the film? <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a new one. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I don't know what the conscious narrative of the film is. Mm -hmm. partly because of the way the film was made. But also, unless you're telling a very kind of uh, straightforward story of some kind, which is not something that really appeals to me, I don't think that the creator of any film work can impose their ideas on what the film means. You know, you share this thing, it becomes a kind of common experience. And what you just said to me was something that no one has said to me so far. And I've had dozens of interesting interpretations of this film. I think that's a great interpretation, but ultimately it's yours, you know, and everybody else who sees this film, they will have theirs. And that is the objective of making a film. You want people to watch it and see something that they recognize themselves. Perhaps you recognize that because you're familiar with this story from the book of Genesis. But then, you know, if you'd never read that or heard that story before, maybe you wouldn't see it in quite the same way. So I don't know what the conscious narrative is. I don't think I really applied one <laughs> uh, in any direct way. Yeah, 
the thing that makes me happiest really is to hear when people have ideas and theories about the film and the fact that I get so many varied ones tells me that this film has been successful in its objective, you know, which is to generate, generate those ideas. So it's more of a visual experience that each viewer has their own personal experience of. I it. hope so. Yeah. I think it's not only visual, the audio element is equally important. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Those two things actually have a synergistic effect. Yeah. One plus one equals three. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. I think the outcome of that equation is the film is an emotional film. A lot of people have come up to me afterwards and said that they felt strong emotions after seeing it. And I, I mean, I would say maybe if I could give it any idea of my own that it's a kind of a love story, but uh, not any real conventional one. But that's about all I really think I know about it. And I think it should be an emotional experience. I mean, it's caused rooms to fall, <laughs> fall silent for several <laughs> minutes after it's ended multiple times, <laughs> especially when it's been, awesome. you know, I've projected it in many different places. And my favorite places to project it actually are often in bars and things, but I have a sound system that's set up for live music because then you really get the full power of the audio experience. I think that's quite important. Yeah, I mean, that film for a while, I had kind of set aside what little occult practice I had because I got so zoned in on the podcast. And I forget what I was referencing when I pulled your book out. And I started thinking, you know, I wonder if Michael William West is on Instagram. And so I looked you up, found you and then found this film. And I just completely forgot about how powerful expressions of the mind could be. And that got me back into my practice and my continual search that I put on hold to learn a new craft, learn new things, which is good, but I didn't want to neglect that any longer. Your film really just kind of set my mind back online. Well, that's great. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's a fantastic outcome. I'm very pleased. Well, could you tell me about the cast of the film? Of course. Paloma, who plays the dream girl character, is a very old friend of mine. We're very close, very good friends. And she's fantastic, you know, a great person to work with. And Edouard, also a very good friend, who plays the machine man. So those are the two kind of principal roles. And they were great because we made this film during the lockdown, a very tough lockdown in France. But you were allowed an exemption to go out and go about your business if you were making a short film for some reason. I don't know why, but I didn't question it. I was quite happy. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, we got the paperwork for that. So I think we were all happy to be allowed to go out and do something. But I told them from the outset that there was no possibility of any script, any backstory, any anything to this. We were just going to show up. And on the day, I'd bring the ideas I'd had that morning. And then we just worked through them until the curfew struck at six o'clock and we all had to be home in our beds. And they were just both completely 100% trusting of the whole experience, which is not something that you, you take for granted when you're working with people. It's them being projected on the screen after all. You know, they have to trust you a lot. And they're both very happy with how it turned out. So that's great. And, and then I had two other people involved in the film. Shauna Yabra, my friend, who's a wonderful person too, extraordinary in many ways, burlesque dancer and mask maker, and she was the masked figure. And uh, Edouard's partner, Moran, who very, <laughs> she had a tough time with it, but she played the hooded figures in the embrace, which was pretty unpleasant, but she was a trooper. So they uh -huh. all did great work. Yeah. 
It's funny how you mentioned that you were allowed to do short films. You were also, I mean, I don't know about Paris, but in the U.S., you were allowed to still go and do podcasts, like not remote like we're doing, but actual in-studio podcasts, because I think they realized that the morale of the country without art or maybe at a lower level, just entertainment period would really be affected dramatically. It was affected dramatically from all sorts mm. of other things, but that was definitely not going to help. It was a very interesting allowance that they made. Yeah, very curious. But, you know, like I said, I was not complaining about it. So no, absolutely. As absurd as it seemed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the score to the film was created by Saul Adam Chusky, I think is pronounced. Uh, as a, yeah, Adam Chevsky, I think. But yeah. Chevsky. Oh, okay. It's a hard... Uh, W, yeah. Adam Chevsky. Okay. Who is, uh, he's an interesting character. <laughs> Can you tell me about him and how he came to be a contributor to the project? Sure. Well, Saul is one of my closest friends. You know, we've known each other a long time. We spend a lot of time together socially. And he is an interesting character, but he's got some very particular brilliance in him and a lot of demons. And as I mentioned earlier, he believes himself to be possessed by the angry ghost of Austin Osmond's spare because he actually lived in one of Spare's former residences in London at some point, you know, many years later. Well, you know, if there's something possessing him, it could well be that, I guess. But we'd never really discussed working together creatively because, you know, Saul's a musician and he has his band, the Fat White Family, who are very successful, and Insecure Man, also another band of his. But I sent him three stills from the film, a very early stage of editing, and within a week or two, he'd come back to me and he sent me an 18 minute long drone piece he'd made. And I should point out that he made this with Alex White, another member of the band. They both put this together uh, just based off three images. And it was one of those experiences that only comes along very, very rarely in life where I listened to it for 10 seconds and I knew exactly what the film was going to be. I saw the whole thing suddenly, you know, there. So that was an amazing thing. I don't know how he dug that out of just those images, but he said that's what he worked off and he came up with this soundtrack. And then I spent a lot of time sound designing it. So his soundtrack kind of bookends the film in the first and final third. And in the middle third, it's my own sound design predominantly. But yeah, that's how it came about. Pretty amazing thing to have from a very good friend. So yeah, this is probably only the second time I've heard the term sound design. Does that have something to do with the way the track is synced up with the action in the movie? Well, sound design, I guess, is an overall term similar to editing the video, having an overall kind of uh, idea of an outcome and then working the details of every possible thing. So that's a kind of overarching term for all of that. The synchronization between the images and sound, I actually think the term for that is called Mickey Mouse editing, <laughs> funnily enough. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's what it's known as in sound editing circles, which I'm not really a part of, but it goes back to early Disney where they uh, developed the technique when the music would change or the sound effects would change as Mickey did certain things on screen. And that's, uh, you know, it's a very common technique now, but I took it to a particularly extreme degree in this film. And, you know, it's a 10 minute film, nine and a half minutes, but it was edited frame by frame. So editing this film was probably like editing an entire TV series, you know, in terms of workload. 
in some respects. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but certainly on a par with a future film, no doubt. Uh-huh. Every single frame. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. Well, I've been on Instagram. I've been on, I think, your website itself. Seen numerous awards and nominations for awards. Can you tell us about those? I think we've had about 10 festivals so far. And we're maybe around halfway through the run. So it's maybe another year. I'm hoping perhaps another 10. Some really interesting ones. I think the most exciting one was to be selected for L'Etrange Festival, which is a major festival in Paris for strange cinema. Mm-hmm which takes place in the Forum des Images, which is literally on the Rue de Cinema in Paris, which is, you know, an amazing place. So I was very happy with that. And uh, lots of other fantastic festivals. The Signs of the Night Festival have been very supportive. I met some fantastic people through that. The great little festival in Belgium called the Obscure Festival. And actually next week, or in where are we now to first? So on the 6th of December, I don't know if this will be in time, but we're playing the film at the Marilyn Monroe Theatre in Hollywood for another festival. So that's... Now, I'm, I'm sorry, you said the Marilyn Monroe Theater where? Uh, in Hollywood. It's at the Lee Strasberg Institute on Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood. So, wow. Yeah, I think it's... Congrats on that. Yeah, I mean, it's great. <laughs> I've been very happy to play there. It's, you know, I'm very fascinated by old Hollywood, particularly up to and including Marilyn Monroe. So I was pleased, uh. pleased at that. Well, this <laughs> I'm probably going to be admitting my ignorance here, but I know you do quite a bit of digital magic post-production, but as far as production, was this shot digital? Yeah, almost entirely, although there are some 35 millimeter images mashed in. There's many, many layers to this film. Oh, okay. Some found footage. So both. Yeah, wow. both. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the editing was a laborious process. I've been asked by a few people what kind of filter I used to make the film look like that, which is kind of interesting. (laughs) The idea that you could just put an Instagram filter over it and it turns out like that. I think I'd be quite distraught if that did exist. But in a way, I kind of like that people don't know how much effort goes into making it look a certain way. So Uh it gives it a little bit of mystery, I think. Yeah. So I shouldn't ask you your uh, post-production secrets? <laughs> well, I can't give away too much of the secret sauce, no. But uh, yeah, uh, well, like I said, I think... Uh, we'll just leave it broad yeah, strokes. Fr- Frame-by-frame <laughs> editing is not something most people are willing to do, but uh, that much I can say this film was, you know, that's how I went about this film. Well, what was the budget for The Dream Machine and how did you fund it? Well, I mean, I think I can round it down to zero, nothing. You know, we were in lockdown, you know, financial situation was uncertain for most people, at least relatively uncertain, I think, for a lot of people. I had a couple of possibilities for funded projects prior to that, and they were both shut down immediately as soon as COVID hit. And uh, I don't know, I mean, you can do a lot with nothing. I mean, you need some basic equipment. Paloma wears this white nightgown. She didn't own one. She likes black. (laughs) and I didn't want her to wear black. So we bought two of those, and one of them we planned to destroy in some way, and we never did that. So I'm still slightly annoyed about that little inefficiency, but that was maybe 25 euros or something like that. And then we bought some tomatoes, and I think that was all we actually spent any money on. I meet a lot of filmmakers. Well, you know, I meet occasional filmmakers, actually, not that many. But when I do, I often hear that they're upset that they don't have $20,000 to make a film. If they don't get it, they can't do anything, and I just... (laughs) I don't agree with that. You know, you can do an awful lot with nothing. 
I've also met people who say you should never reveal that your film is low budget, but I don't care about that either. I think <laughs> if anyone out there is listening who wants to make a film and they don't have any money, then you know it can be done. Yeah, I think it's very important that people do with whatever they can lay their hands on. Well, when you're directing actors in an experimental film like The Dream Machine, there's more action than dialogue. How does the way you direct the actors differ from when you're making more of a dialogue-driven film, like your previous film, Nine Circles? It is pretty different. Uh, I think, as I kind of mentioned earlier, both actors in this film were very, very open-minded with just showing up with absolutely no idea about what they were going to be asked to do. I made sure that they were comfortable with everything they were doing, of course, but you certainly couldn't do that with a dialogue-driven film for obvious reasons. I think that I wouldn't make a dialogue-oriented film again on a low budget without having the kind of assistance you get from a major production. There's so many things to take care of, it's almost impossible to achieve a satisfying result if you're taking that on alone. So it's, yeah, very different process and I think you need a lot more support and so do the actors they need people to rely on it's not just the director who's you know got a thousand things to deal with all at once so besides the obvious surrealism of black and white photography and cinematography what draws you to shoot in it almost exclusively uh, <laughs> if I'm going to be entirely honest budget is a major consideration because making things look the way at least the way I want them to look in color is extremely difficult. I mean, it's very challenging in a photograph and in a moving image, it's impossible, more or less. I mean, it would have been impossible for a film like The Dream Machine anyway. But I think, uh, you know, I love the surreal, the kind of caligarisme, they call it in France, the, the old black and white feel of films that were made in the silent era appeals to me a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's a combined aesthetic choice as well as the restriction but one that you can work with and have a lot of enjoyment with working with. And that's extremely practical because there's so much more you can do when you're only working with light and dark, essentially. Mm -hmm. So what is the etymology of Five Heads films? I mean, I don't think there's really one, to be honest. I think uh, I needed to start a production company 10 years ago so that I could access things that only... People who own production companies can access like uh, prop hire agencies. That was just the name that I chose. Okay. Yeah. I don't think it has any profound significance, to be honest. No uh, archaic occult influence? No, nothing <laughs> like that. I think it was the name of, uh, I wrote a novel when I was in my early 20s, terrible thing, mm -hmm. but it was the name of the location of the novel. So oh, okay. That, that's about <laughs> all there is to it. Yeah. Well, where did you learn the craft of writing and film production? Are you an autodidact? Do you have some formal training? No, I'm completely self-taught autodidact. I think uh, there are some benefits to going to film school when it comes to having a community of people who've also been to film school that you were there with. That's very useful. But otherwise, I think there's very little that you can't learn by going out and just making a film. I made a film assisting an American filmmaker and didn't turn out all that well. The films never got made, unfortunately, but I, I did learn a lot in that experience. And then I went ahead and just started making my own, got camera eventually and started shooting films. That was it. So. so there's no getting online and watching videos on any particular technical aspect, just like do it and learn as you go. 
for sure. I mean, when there's something you need, YouTube is there, of course. But I think once you've got the basics figured out, you don't want to get too stuck in watching endless videos, trying to master every single possible uh, yeah. feature of a piece of equipment. Just go and learn the hard way, and then you don't forget. Well, you've mentioned Kenneth Anger. Who are your influences in the realm of film? Yeah, I mean, Kenneth Anger, certainly. But I would also say I love the works of Maya Darren. I think she's probably the one that I had most in mind when I made The Dream Machine. I think those two are very important, particularly when it comes to making short films, you know, that are more, more abstracted than narrative. I don't really think short films are a good medium for a narrative. There isn't really enough space. You can tell a compelling narrative in about 20 minutes, I think, which is quite long for a short film, in fact. So in 10, even 15 minutes, I don't think there's really the space to engage so much. Mm. But what Kenneth Anger and Maya Darren did was amazing. There's one film I particularly love, a Japanese film called Demons by a director called uh, Matsumoto. I think he only made two films. Uh, for me, this is just a perfect film. So I, I would say that as well. That film and then those two filmmakers, I really love. Well, where do you normally acquire the cast for your films? I mean, I know with Dream Machine, those are some people that you knew personally. Is that usually the case for your previous films? Yeah, it's always from within a circle of people I know. Yeah, I think to go beyond that, when you're making no-budget films, it's a lot to ask of a stranger you know, <laughs> to begin with. So you can ask your friends if they want to do it too. Well, with your future films, do you plan to stay with a more abstract experimental form or will you include dramatic films as well? And can you tell us a little about your plans? And when I say dramatic films, I don't mean like <laughs> Titanic or something like that, but <laughs> kind of like nine circles where there's kind of a dialogue driven, yeah. multiple locales, stuff like that. Sure. So I'll always continue to make experimental. I have two currently being worked on, one of which is something I'm working on with a friend of mine, TJ, but he goes by the name King Dude. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his mm -mm. music, but uh, yeah, I love his work. He's a Luciferian. His music is fantastic. And I think he made eight or nine albums under the King Dude name. He's now retired that project and wanted to make some kind of film soundtrack stuff. So we've begun working on something together, which is really fantastic. But the biggest project came out of the success of The Dream Machine. And uh, I'm working with a production company here in France to make a feature film with, you know, a significant major budget, you know, big funding, five to seven million dollars is the target amount. So, you know, that's a big project. And that will, you know, wow. come. Yeah. Unfortunately, I won't be permitted to make uh, two hours of The Dream Machine. <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> if anyone would want to sit through that <laughs> two hours or not. But, uh, this will be a much more conventional film. I've just spent a year and a half writing the screenplay, which I'm coming to the end of doing that now. The film is going to be called Perfect Beauty. And it's going to be a kind of film noir horror film set in the mid-1990s. It will certainly contain a lot of abstractions and things that were maybe uh, drawn from The Dream Machine and my other films, but it will be a kind of film with a narrative and dialogue and you know, the things that you might expect, more or less. Okay. So that's the, that's the big project. Well, what is the life of Michael William West like outside of literature and film? Uh, <laughs> I think probably surprisingly mundane. Yeah. You know, I live, in, I live in Paris and it's a wonderful place to be. It's my home city. I've been here for many years and I enjoy 
a fairly typical Parisian lifestyle. You know, there's terrace culture here, drinking wine outside, smoking cigarettes and good food and bars and, you know, there's so much culture here. You know, I can jump out of my house and within 10 minutes I'm inside the Pompidou Center. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that I go there every day or anything, but every few months, it's still a real pleasure to be able to access these things. And, you know, otherwise I think uh, nothing too, uh, nothing too, too wild or orgiastic to report, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, I've been to Paris, but it was kind of this package deal. I took the Eurostar train from London and I only ended up spending two nights in Paris. So didn't really have much time to experience the city. But, you know, the the little time that I spent in it, it was like a dream world. Just <laughs> nothing like I've ever experienced before. It's absolutely the city of dreams and nightmares in equal dose. I mean, it is a, it's a wonderful place, but it's also a horrendous, terrifying and very inhuman place at times. But I mean, I kind of love it. I mean, it's the world's biggest mental hospital. And it levels, <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, I know London very well. Of course, any big city, New York, Los Angeles, any big city there, are, of course, people who are unstable and struggling and, you know, having difficulties mentally. But Paris is just unreal. <laughs> you know, it fascinates me, but it's, you know, for anybody, it's, it can be quite intense. But there's wonderful people here as well. And I think Paris and France in general sometimes have a, a negative reputation for unfriendliness, but it's not been my experience at all. I find uh, French people, particularly outside of Paris, to be among the most welcoming and friendly people that I know. And even within Paris, there's wonderful people here, you know, of all kinds of backgrounds, of course. And, uh, yeah, I love it. And uh, it's, uh, it's a fantastic city in spite of its, you know, challenges. <laughs> um, yeah, dreams and nightmares all rolled into one. <laughs> well, Michael, it has been fascinating talking with you. Yeah, thank you for having me and uh, putting up with my, uh, my voice, which is still recovering from quite a long cold so i'm quite blocked up uh, in a sore throat so <laughs> nah, no problems here i appreciate okay. you being on the show <laughs> but uh yeah it's been a real pleasure i'm uh, i'm very happy to have joined in the, the dark mind podcast and uh, yeah thanks for having me yes, sir as we bring the show to a close is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers and viewers know about the only thing i'd like to let people know about is that if you're interested in watching the film the dream machine is available for free in full on Vimeo and on YouTube and I own the full rights to the film so it's always going to be there and I just you know what I want is for people to watch it you can find it there you can find it via my Instagram and I will definitely have those links listeners at home they will all be in the description and Michael thank you again for joining me thank you for having me on and thank you to everyone that tuned in if you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
Yeah. 